who in this room does not wish to see our death simply cancelled. If you don't, you can take the first flight to the World Bank to go and pay to the World Bank. I would like this conference to clearly declare that we cannot pay the debt, not in a rebellious spirit, but just to avoid being assassinated individually. In Burkina Faso, I'm the only one to refuse, and I might not be in the next conference. But on the other hand, with everybody's support, and when we are saying that we should not pay the debt, we are not refusing our responsibilities or not keeping our words. It's just that we don't have the same moral standards as others. Between the rich and the poor, moral standards cannot be the same. The Bible or the Quran cannot serve those who exploit people and those exploited ones in the same way. We should have two editions of the Bible and two editions of the Quran. Brothers, with everybody's support, we will make peace at home. We will be able to use Africa's full potential as well as develop our country because our land is rich. We have enough manpower and we have a very large market. From the north to the south to the east to the west, we have enough brain power to create or at least go and learn science and technology where it can be learned from. Mr. President, let's present a united front against the debt here in Addis Ababa. Let's make sure that this conference will decide to limit the arms race between poor and weak countries. The clubs and knives that we buy are useless. Let's make sure that the African market belongs to African. Let's produce in Africa, manufacture in Africa, and consume in Africa. Let's produce what we need and consume what we produce. Instead of importing goods, Burkina Faso came here to show our locally produced cotton, woven in Burkina Faso, tailored in Burkina Faso, to clothe our own people. I, along with my delegation, am dressed by our tailors, our farmers. Not a single thread comes from Europe or America. I'm not presenting a fashion show here, but simply I would like to say that we must accept to live the African way. It's the only way to live in freedom and with dignity. Thank you, Mr. President. Our homeland or death of, we will win. So, in the final hour here, we going to be diving in to some significant historical events in West Africa in the late 80s that are normally not associated with the story of Charles Taylor, or if they are, it's usually as a minor tangential footnote. To some extent, that might be understandable, because as we will get to in the next chapter, the activities he engaged in once he launched his revolution sort of shocked the world. But if we're going to talk honestly about this convicted war criminal, this convicted warlord, I have my own bones to pick about the Hague trial that he got caught up in. But if I had my druthers, I might put him on trial for a different crime, one that we're going to get into right now. When I first discovered this a few years ago, 
I'd already been researching Charles Taylor on and off for a while. And this was one of those factoids that I stumbled across that really kind of blew my mind for reasons that you are about to see. So let's answer the question, what did Charles Taylor do between 1985 and 1989? I'll start here just reading a summary that Han gives of his activities. It's cursory, but pretty much accurate, and I think it sets the right tone. And then we'll zoom in on some of the things he did, which are quite nefarious, to say the least. Han writes that, In November 1985, Taylor escaped from Plymouth County Correctional Facility in Massachusetts. There were many rumors about how he escaped, but according to Taylor, he was escorted to a minimum security area by a correctional officer during the night where he could escape through a window. Two cars were waiting outside, one with his wife, and the other with two men who took him to New York. Taylor assumes that it must have been a U.S. government car because the two men would not let him drive with his wife because they feared that he could be, quote, picked up by the police. Taylor arrived in Ghana, where, according to Arnold Koenu, former general in the armed forces of Ghana, he was arrested by the Ghanaian authorities who suspected him of being a CIA spy. After diplomatic talks with the government of Burkina Faso, headed by Thomas Sankara, the Ghanaian government was assured that Taylor did not have business in Ghana as a spy. Taylor was released and traveled to Ivory Coast. In Ivory Coast, Taylor joined the NPFL, where, according to Prince Johnson, he was well-received. Because of his background, he was gradually able to overtake the leadership of the NPFL. Taylor introduced himself as, quote, brother-in-law of the Gio and Mano ethnic groups, which was supported by the fact that he was married to Towe, who was from the Gio ethnic group, and daughter of the late Paramount chief, Blazuo Towe. So I think that is maybe his, his third or fourth wife at this point. He was getting married a lot in this period. I think there was... Uh, there was Bernice in America. Then there was Tupi, the niece of General Thomas Quiangpa. Then there was Agnes, who assisted in getting money to help him flee the country after he would go to jail. And I actually think the daughter of Blazuo Towe. Anyways, as Taylor entered the revolutionary environment in West Africa, he ascended rapidly through the hierarchy of the MPFL and was introduced to Blaise Compare, the deputy head of state of Burkina Faso. Through Compare, he met President Thomas Sankara. Compare then introduced Taylor to Colonel Gaddafi of Libya, who entered into an agreement to train the MPFL. Now, this is an important note here, as we'll see. The details of how connections were established between different key actors are widely contested and contradictory. According to Prince Johnson, Taylor went to Sierra Leone to negotiate, quote, passage for the MPFL to invade Liberia, and he met with a Liberian called Prince Barclay, a follower of Dr. H. Boy Mafonbola, who introduced him to President Joseph Momo of Sierra Leone. In return for Momo's support, he requested that the NPFL compensate the surviving family members of the Sierra Leoneans who were executed in 1985 by Doe after the failed coup led by Quiangpa. Momo also requested that the NPFL arrange accommodations for the, quote, 150 men from Libya and where they would stay before their invasion of Liberia. Taylor then went to France to meet with, quote, financiers and other businessmen to finance the insurgency. Now that, that one sentence is, I think, contains multitudes 
but we'll get back to it. Upon his return to Sierra Leone, President Momo was out of the country and Taylor was arrested and detained in the same cell with Corporal Fodesenko, who was completing his prison term for attempting to overthrow former President Siaka Stevens. Taylor was released two days later and asked Senko to join him in Burkina Faso after his release. Two months later, Senko came to Burkina Faso, where Taylor, quote, introduced him to President Blaise Compare, and all arrangements were put in place for a meeting with Colonel Gaddafi. In Libya, quote, a pact between Senko and Taylor was signed, where the Sierra Leone contingent would assist Taylor in removing President Doe and make him president of Liberia. In return, the Liberian government under Taylor would order the army to join Senko's group to invade Sierra Leone and install Senko as president. Now, that is the version of the story according to Prince Johnson, who we should note would later become a rival of Charles Taylor and uh, an opponent of him. So that's one version of the story. In contrast, Hahn writes, Taylor states that, quote, there was no pact with the revolutionary United Front leader, Fodesenko, for mutual assistance. Taylor did, quote, not know about the creation of the RUF in 1989, and he, quote, did not know Fodesenko. He only knew Ali Kaba and the Sierra Leone Pan-African movement. However, he did acknowledge support from Gaddafi, who for Taylor is, quote, an African hero because he assisted in the struggle to, quote, get rid of the colonial and neo-colonial rule in Africa. There are many rumors on who met who and where and what they talked about and the networks of personal connections between key actors in the political and economic environment in West Africa are complex. They consist of the intersection between both kinship and business interests in combination with nationalism, segments of left-wing and right-wing pan-Africanism, and identity politics, particularly concerning ethnicity and religion. These networks had a significant impact on the conflict dynamics in Liberia and the West African region. Daisy De La Foss, who we mentioned earlier, the goddaughter of Ivorian President Houphoué Boigny and widow of A.B. Tolbert, married Blaise Compare who then became the son-in-law of Houphoué Boigny. Doe, therefore, had two powerful enemies in Compare and Houphoué Boigny, and they both supported the Taylor-led NPFL. Regarding Houphoué Boigny and Compare, Herman Cohen claims that, quote, there would not have been a war in Liberia if these two outside powers had not sponsored it. The interests of Compare and Houphoué Boigny converged with Gaddafi's ideas of a pan-African revolution, and Libya became the center of training and coordination for the NPFL. NPFL rebels were sent to Libya, where they were trained at the former U.S. military base, Wheelis Air Base. Now, I believe that was also called the World Revolutionary Center, where they were trained. However, the NPFL was in contact with all parties who wished to remove Doe from office, in particular the U.S. government. The NPFL did not intend to be a proxy force of any government, so they sought support from multiple external sources, such as private businesses and the governments of France and the U.K. The leadership in the NPFL and the RUF, we're going to hear more about them later, by the way. They were the notorious rebel group from Sierra Leone in the 90s, led by Fode Senko. So the question of did Taylor become friends with Senko and where and when, etc., will assume a lot of importance uh, later in the narrative. But the leadership in the NPFL and the RUF considered themselves as Pan-Africanists, but few had a socialist orientation. Pan-Africanism for them 
meant minimizing the influence of non-African actors in Africa. However, some leaders in both organizations added socialist rhetoric to mobilize local support for the insurgency and to recruit soldiers. The NPFL did not have a written program, but the socialist rhetoric is well reflected in the RUF's 1989 basic document of the Revolutionary United Front of Sierra Leone, the Second Liberation of Africa. This document echoes Nkrumah's anti-neocolonial struggle through a particular mixture of socialist and anarchist ideas. It begins by stating that the objective of the RUF is to, quote, liberate the economy from all forms of domination, both local and foreign, where the wealth of the land should belong to the people. The mission is an anti-neocolonial struggle for genuine independence and a contribution to the task of the total political and economic liberation and unification of Africa. In a new Sierra Leone, the RUF will decide on an economic policy that is consistent with our national and pan-Africanist interests, which will seek not to be polarized to either state capitalism or private capitalism. Okay, so kind of Trotsky alert, I guess, uh, state capitalism. Instead, they will enable, quote, a turnkey partnership with investors in the exploitation of the natural resources, which leaves no opening for anybody to claim economic hegemony over others. Tokpa notes that the program was confusing and reflected internal disagreements where the text could be interpreted in any way possible by any member of the RUF, the original draft program was written in the mid-1980s by Cleo Hensilis at the University of Ghana. Hensilis was a socialist pan-Africanist inspired by Nkrumah, and the initial draft was a socialist program, which was later rewritten by RUF leadership. Now, here's where we get to the real crazy shit. Thomas Sankara, the Marxist president of Burkina Faso, supported the socialist groupings, but he was skeptical of the NPFL. In 1987, Prince Johnson, planning and training officer for the NPFL, noted that a problem occurred when President Sankara took a position of, quote, nonconformity of the entire plan of the NPFL. Sankara insisted that his country would not be used to destabilize Liberia and was determined to deport the NPFL from Burkina Faso. This created disagreement between Sankara and his deputy, Kampare, who, quote, came under intense pressure from his father-in-law, Houphouet Boigny, who wanted the removal of President Doe from office at all cost. According to Prince Johnson, this led to a, quote, conspiracy between Kampare and Charles Taylor, which resulted in the overthrow and death of head of state Sankara with the use of the Liberian connection. As Kampare became the new head of state of Burkina Faso, all arrangements for preparing the NPFL for the incursion into Liberia were put in place. Both Prince Johnson and Cyril Allen acknowledged that the NPFL leadership was involved in the assassination of Sankara. However, the CIA infiltrated the NPFL and convinced the NPFL leadership and Kampare that Sankara had to be assassinated. The United States wanted to get rid of Sankara because of his socialist pan-African policies, which began to materialize in Burkina Faso. So, right there, it's good that Han notes it because many books about Liberia just completely blow over it, but as Prince Johnson did testify in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, in Liberia, and I think even before that, I think as early as 2003, he publicly claimed that they were all involved, not just Blaise Compare, who, by the way, was Thomas Sankara's best friend, right-hand man, and then assumed the presidency after Sankara was killed. Blaise Compare 
would go on to be the dictatorial president of Burkina Faso, I think for the next 27 years, until he was finally overthrown in 2014. And uh, I believe a few years ago actually had to flee Burkina Faso. And just a couple of months ago, in on April 6, 2022, a court in Burkina Faso found Blaise Compare guilty for his participation in the assassination of Thomas Sankara and gave him a life sentence, although it is in absentia. Interestingly enough, he has lived in exile in Ivory Coast, where his father-in-law, Houphouet Boigny, was the longtime president. So, and now I believe is actually an Ivorian citizen, perhaps through his wife. So this trial, it was a long time coming. Obviously, Blaise Compare claimed that I think he was asleep or something when Sankara was murdered, that he had nothing to do with it. He was never believed. People always highly suspected. It was a very obvious coup. But, you know, we haven't talked too much about Thomas Sankara, and we probably don't have time to do his uh, political career true justice. But suffice it to say, he was probably the last successful galvanizing socialist leader, both in Africa and really in the world, in the waning days of the Cold War, to uh, take power in a military coup and implement a Marxist socialist uh, government with strong Pan-African tendencies in 1983. So he, he was a young army officer who, with a group of other army officers, which some people actually say were trained and kind of organized and supported by Libya, I think including Charles Taylor, says that the Sankara revolution in 1983 was uh, as a result of Qaddafi's support, which I think to some degree um, seems to be true. So they took over the former French colony of Upper Volta and Sankara renamed it Burkina Faso, which I think in the uh, Burkina Bay language translates to the land of upright or honest men. I'll just read a little paragraph here from an interview with Brian J. Peterson, who is a history professor at Union College. I haven't read his book, but he wrote a book called Sankara, A Revolutionary Life and Legacy. And just for people who have no frame of reference, I'll read here his answer to who was Thomas Sankara and why is he still such an important figure in Burkina Faso. And he says, Captain Thomas Sankara was a visionary revolutionary leader in the late Cold War era in Francophone Africa. After coming to power on August 4th, 1983, through a popular insurrection and military coup d'etat, the young military officer immediately set his sights on combating social injustices, poverty, and corruption within the newly renamed Burkina Faso. He was a charismatic figure and gifted orator who fought tirelessly to improve the lives of peasants, women, and the youth. He read extensively, particularly revolutionary classics, and was deeply engaged with political debates among civilian groups. As he often said, quote, a soldier without political education is a potential criminal. Despite the fact that Sankara was a soldier, he was widely embraced because many saw his revolution as a sign that things were finally going in the right direction in Africa. He was seeking a renewal of society and leading a revolution in the true sense of the word. Many Africans, both within Burkina Faso and in neighboring countries, felt that for the first time in years, Africa had a leader with a genuine interest to the people at heart. His speeches and political actions held the kind of promise that Africans had not seen since the early years of independence. His words represented 
represented a kind of revolutionary humanism that fused socialist, pan-Africanist, feminist, and environmentalist ideas with that of the Catholic principles in which he had been raised. For many youth during the so-called lost decade of the 1980s, Sankara emerged as a powerful symbol of resistance and hope across Africa. And he goes on, as a committed pan-Africanist and vocal anti-imperialist, Sankara fought to break the neocolonial control that France still exercised over its former colonies while forging a non-aligned path during the Cold War. He opposed neoliberal reforms and attended structural adjustment programs that were sweeping across Africa at the time. And he focused on concrete ways to make his country more self-reliant, envisioning it as a truly independent nation, an equal partner in international trade and diplomacy, rather than a mere aid recipient and subservient political pawn. He was also a hugely popular figure within Burkina Faso and across Africa because he was a new kind of leader, a true man of integrity who lived modestly and refused to fall into the trap of using state power for self-enrichment. In this way, Sankara represented a radical departure from existing systems of governance in Africa, which had been fraught with corruption, growing indebtedness, and authoritarian rule. Unfortunately, just as Burkina Faso was becoming a model of sustainable development and more transparent governance, the revolution tragically ended on October 15, 1987, when Sankara, at 37 years old, was assassinated in a plot organized by his close friend, Blaise Compare. Certainly, Sankara's death was viewed as a kind of martyrdom, and it played an important role in assuring him a place in the pantheon of African political heroes alongside Patrice Lumumba, Kwame Nkrumah, Amilcar Cabral, Nelson Mandela, and so forth. He says, I think that Sankara's staying power has a lot to do with his visionary ideas and political practices. For example, he was far ahead of his time on many pressing social, political, economic, and environmental issues. Sankara took steps to liberate women long before other African heads of state considered such measures. He imposed austerity measures in a manageable way by eliminating every last privilege of governing elites while expanding education and health care. And during one of the worst droughts and famines in the West African Sahel, Sankara embraced policies aimed at enabling his country to live within its means while battling to stop the spread of the Sahara through massive reforestation campaigns. He worked to confront the perennial problem of debt in African countries and proposed building a united front to force more favorable terms. But most of all, he led a, quote, revolution of the mentalities, inspiring his people to transform their realities. In doing so, Sankara experimented with new structures and ideas of radical or direct democracy, empowering villagers to form local cooperatives and elected political bodies in which they had a voice and were able to take initiatives in improving their lives. Compared to some of the other political contemporary figures uh, that we've covered in this story so far, like, for example, Samuel Doe, Sankara really was kind of the real deal. He was a real inspirational, effective brilliant, eloquent, respected leader. But as you could probably tell just from that description of what he was trying to establish in Burkina Faso, especially trying to shake off the neocolonial French influence that was still there, his policies pissed a lot of people in the West off. So according to one of Taylor's enemies, he and Charles Taylor were instrumental in hatching the plot with Blaise Compare to kill Thomas Sankara. But as it turns out, there's more evidence of this happening. 
For access to the full-length episode, subscribe to the Hour of Frequency at patreon.com slash subliminal jihad. This is a story of Jerry. One African leader day to day. Him in the president Sankara. He's the only leader where he did. When the day go talk the truth. Him in the president Sankara. He's the only leader where he did. Him say African unity. One African government for all. All the other leaders with them day. Not only them pockets with them know. Underground system is their lives. One African leader day to day. All African people them like the man. Him in the president Sankara. That's Sankara story, Ojari. All African people them like the man. This in the president Sankara. Them get one club. Them call the club. Them call them Ecowas. C E D A O in French. When you reach a caraston to be shaman, African leaders them start to fear the underground system in their lives. They show up corruption and destruction. Mismanagement of the mind don't stop. The underground system that always leaves mistrust. From his tongue, Nigeria, Ivory Coast, and Senegal. Them come show the color of their minds. When it is a caraston to be chairman, African leaders them start to fear the underground system in their lives.